All right, good evening, everybody. Now you can stop talking. <laughs> We're going to be in James chapter 1 tonight, if you want to be turning there in your Bibles, and we'll uh, pray and we'll get started. Father, we, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this place, this fellowship that we can come and study your word. And we, we pray that we take it to heart tonight as, as James is, can be very direct. And we, we pray that we, we're not offended by that. We, we, we take it to heart and we, we really apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, James chapter 1, verse 1 says, reads, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now, that term uh, bondservant should be fairly familiar to us. Uh, Paul has used that at least three times in, in his, his uh, books that he's written. Uh, has the connotation from way back in Exodus that uh, it's, a, it's a slave, but it's a slave that's willing, that wants to be a, a servant or a slave to this person. So uh, James announces himself as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just a, a, a little bit about James. Uh, I'm going to get a, not much of a biography, but just so we know where he's coming from. James, first of all, in that first verse, he doesn't claim he is the half-brother of Jesus, uh, sharing the same mother, Mary. Um, obviously, different fathers. His father was Joseph, and the Holy Spirit being the father of Jesus. Uh, so, but he claims no uh, special position or authority based on that, based on his close relationship with Jesus. He rather refers to himself again as the, the bondservant. Uh, the, the willing slave, the willing servant of of our uh, of our Lord. So, uh, as we look back, and I I really didn't realize how big a deal this was, but there are some uh, some in Christendom who believe that uh, Mary was a perpetual virgin. So. Uh, we have scripture, and I'll go, I'll go through some of that that disproves that. The first uh, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 24 and 25 uh, reads, Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. This obviously implies that they did, and Joseph and Mary did have normal marital relations after the birth of Jesus. It did not know her until she had brought forth. Um, and in Mark, uh, Mark 6, verses 1 through 3, it says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many, hearing him, were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the, carpenter's, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, are, and are not his sisters with us? So they were offended at him. So this clearly tells us he's got at least six siblings, four brothers, and at least two sisters. Um... So again, uh, 
we're, we're told that this James, the writer of this book, is a half-brother of our Lord. It's not to be confused with James the disciples. He was not a disciple. In fact, um, he was not initially a believer at all. Uh, uh, Matthew 13, 53 and 58 through 58 says, uh, and Galatians uh, I'm sorry, James, he was not initially a believer, but he came to believe during the 40 days after the crucifixion and before the ascension. Uh, he, he grew up with Jesus. So in that, in growing up with Jesus, he might have a, an, an advantage that we don't. He, in other words, he, he knew, he was much more aware of Jesus' humanity, I think, than, than probably, at least I am. I'm when I think of Jesus, yeah, he was, he was fully God, absolutely. And he was fully human, absolutely. But I, I don't really think, focus on his humanity. I focus more on his divinity, of course. And it, but James, having grown up with him, would be the opposite, maybe, is true. Um, he would grow up hearing, uh, no doubt, hearing his mother and father telling stories. And, you know, uh, the, the angel Gabriel came to see me and told me that, I was going to have this baby, and and you can almost see, you know, a teen, young teenager that rolling their eye. Uh huh. How, how many times am I going to hear this story? And no, really, there's the box where where the wise men brought me the gold in, you know, and the frankincense and myrrh. There's the box right there. It sits. And you know, uh huh. How many times am I going to have to hear this story? And and his brothers with him, you know, you could just about see him sneaking around the wood pile from the wood shop, having a smoke. <laughs> Not really, but. But, but you can see that, you know, talking, how many times are we going to hear this story? How many times? Yeah, I've seen the box. Yeah, the, the angel Gabriel got it, got it. Dad says, oh, the angels talked to me at least four times. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they weren't initially believers. But uh, they, they did have, a, have an advantage in that they were keenly aware of, of Jesus' humanity in, in a way that we're not, uh, in a way that we maybe don't think about as much as we ought to. Um, so Matthew, skipping to Matthew 12, uh, verse 46 through 50, while, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. So it clearly implicates that his brothers, his half-blood brothers, half-siblings, are not believers at this time, are not doing the will of his father. And then uh, in John chapter 7, verse 5, uh, it's even more direct. It says, or even his brothers did not believe in him. So evidence in, in that his brothers are not believers during the time he's with us in the flesh before the crucifixion. But then uh, Paul kind of fills in a little bit of the story in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 3 through 7. After that, he was seen by James and by all the apostles. So... What happens? James's life is completely changed by an encounter with the risen Savior, and, and and that's true 
for all of us who believe. Our lives were changed by an encounter with the risen Savior. And and by the time we get to to Acts chapter 1, beginning in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, uh, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So by the time we get to the first chapter of Acts, all of Jesus' siblings are saved, and they're all there praying with one accord. So... So James, having grown up aware of Jesus' humanity, is now fully, completely aware of Jesus' divinity. And I can't help but thinking that that maybe all that time that he was growing up with Jesus, that he's he's thinking a lot of that time is wasted, that he, he wasn't serving him. He wasn't the bondservant that he is now That when he writes this for us. Maybe that's why uh, he is, uh, if, if not blunt, at least very direct and very to the point, uh, very practical. So, as we go back to the book of James, he calls himself a bondservant, as we've discussed, and he writes the letter to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, he's going to talk. start off his chapter, start off this chapter, or start off his book, really, talking about trials. And it's important to realize, and, and, and I said this in Bible study earlier, that I have a tendency just to read a sentence and gloss over it and not, not really think about it. But if you think about to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, these people are going through trials. These are Christians, formerly Jews, or Jews who are Christians, however you want to say it, and they're scattered abroad like seed. Like, like the member Jesus told us the parable of the, of the sower. These are the seed that's scattered about. Um, But they're going through trials because when you're displaced from your home, it ain't like you got, you know, your your, uh, moving van with all your furniture in it or you you don't have a pocket full of money that you withdrew from the bank. You got maybe a few coins and the clothes on your back. So these people don't have anything. These are Christians. They have nothing, very little. And so they're going through trials. So it's important that we realize who he's writing to. And he says in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. There's the directness I was talking about. (laughs) Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So uh, as as we understand the trials, trials that he's talking about here are things that come upon us outwardly. outward, Outward experiences 
uh, and the first thing that he addresses here. So, as opposed to temptations, which we'll get there, we'll get there in a little bit, but trials are, are like these things that come, come upon a sickness, illness. Maybe we didn't do anything to, do, to, catch, to deserve the flu that we caught. It just came upon us. It's a trial. Uh, losing my job, even though uh, it was just a matter of the, the company was downsizing. I didn't do anything wrong. I, I did my job as faithfully as I knew how. These are trials that come upon us. And, and of course, the, the best, or I think the best biblical example of, uh, of trials, of someone undergoing trials, is, is Job. And it hasn't been terribly long since we went through Job, but just to refresh a little bit of memory, if I can get to it here. So hopefully we're all kind of familiar with the story. Job was an upright man, a man who was blameless. It says, it says uh, that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And it goes on to, to list how many kids he has. He has 10 children, seven sons, uh, possessions. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. He was a very, very wealthy man. God had blessed him. And then... And then uh, Satan comes one day, and God asks him a question. He says, uh, what have you been doing? And Satan says, well, I'm going back and to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. And it says, the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, and a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And, of course, uh, we know, not to, not to cut it short, but that point god says well satan you can you can do what you will to to him but you don't touch his don't touch his body so you know job's uh basically his wealth is gone through a series of raids his uh his servants are killed uh his sons and daughters uh, there was something like a tornado but a great wind blew his house down while they were all in one house sons and daughters are killed uh and then let me bring your attention to verse 22 of, of chapter 1 of Job. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. And, and you just you think about that, and it's like, he was an upright man. And that's, that's a tough one, to lose everything, basically. Uh, and still, he does not sin nor charge God with wrong. You know, it'd be so easy for me to be like, well, if you love me, God, why, why did you let this happen? Why did you let that happen? All my kids are wiped out. I have no money. And, and then it's not over yet. Of course, Job, another day, Satan comes to the Lord, and uh, the Lord asks him the same question. Have you considered my servant Job? Uh, there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God, shuns evil, and he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. And at that point, uh, Joe, uh, Satan says, well, yeah, anybody will, will do that, isn't it? but you let me attack him in his person, and he'll curse you to your name. And so God says, okay, go ahead. And, of course, we know Job uh, is afflicted with these painful boils, from, from it says, from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And uh, you, you, you can't imagine. First... First, you're, you're, 
your wealth is gone. Okay, that's one thing. Then your family is gone. Your, your sons and your daughters are just gone. Now you've got this incredible, painful afflictions in your, in your flesh, and you can't hardly sit down for the pain. Um, he, I get a paper cut. Why, Lord? Why I get a paper cut? But, but he's still, again, bringing your attention to the last part of verse 10 in chapter 2. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So, I um, can't imagine what an example it is to have Job, but I think one of the reasons why, why God gives us this story is that Job undergoes all of that, all of that suffering and all of that pain and misery. And then if you go to chapter 19, he comes to the realization that all of us must come to as well. And, and God give him that, that realization or that insight because he went through that, that pain and that suffering. And he says in verse 25 of chapter 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, and he wasn't far from having his skin destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold him, and not another. And how my heart yearns within me. And it's, he comes to that realization after undergoing or in the middle of all that suffering, really. That's about, it's about halfway through the, the, the book of Job. But then, you know, as it says back in James, if any of you lacks wisdom, in other, in other words, you don't know how to get through this trial. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. He's not going to dress you down for, oh, didn't you just come to me two days ago with the same thing? You, you just prayed two days ago, and here you are again? No, he gives it liberally and without, he wants you. He's begging us to come to him and ask for the wisdom to get through these things. And, and Job did, and maybe not completely correct, correctly, but if you go to the end of Job, which is one of my favorite, personally one of my favorite passages, uh, the whole the, the last four chapters God answers Job although certainly not in a way that he expects but then Job in chapter 42 the first verse he says then Job answered the Lord and said I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you you asked who is this who hides counsel without knowledge therefore I have uttered what I did not understand Things too wonderful for me to know. Um, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That's how you get through a trial. And, and then, of course, the, the, the rest of the story is that Job is blessed beyond... I think exactly twice as what he had to begin with, as far as wealth, uh, family, and, and sons and daughters. And that's how you get through a trial. So, verse and verse seven uh, in that same paragraph. For let let us 
Let not that man suppose that he will receive nothing from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. So you ask expecting God's answer. Uh, you ask knowing that it will happen, not, with, not doubting, not, well, I asked the Lord, but I really didn't think so, so I'm going to go over here and pout. And, and that, that's easy for us, to, it's easy for me to do. Uh, you know, I, I don't get an answer in 10 minutes, I'm ready to go pout. But knowing that it will happen, it, it teaches us, we know that it will happen at some point. The Lord loves us. This is, this is what's producing transformation that he talks about, that Paul talks about in the maturity. So verse 9, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass, the flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now, the lowly brother, that's most of us, the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. What's, what's, what's there to glory in? There's, here is, it's just this, because you are a son or a daughter of God, because you have access to God and his wisdom. It's, it's no coincidence that we're going through Proverbs uh, right now. We have access to that wisdom uh, so we glory in that uh, because you trusted God through the trials and are now have patience because you lack nothing. You have it all. On the Conversely, the rich should glory in the humiliation because it's too easy to count on riches. Uh, it's too easy to think that I have done this. I'm a self-made man. I have done this for myself. My hands have done this. It's too easy to forget that, as it tells us, as the flower fades, uh, that, that riches are temporary and too hard to remember that God's gift is, of life is eternal. Verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now he shifts gears here a little bit from trials and certainly we, trials can be tempting. It can be tempting for us to go the wrong way uh, in the trial. It could Job could have cursed God and died, right? That, that would be the wrong, the incorrect way to answer his trial. Instead, Job asked God, um, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted, of God, tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each, is, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. That has the idea of you fishermen putting the bait on the hook. And, you know, you could be a crappie biting on this today and bass are biting on that. It's just a matter of the right bait. Um, our, the bait is what we desire. That maybe maybe what's... What's, what you desire and what's bait for you would not even be bait for me. And what's bait for me would not be a bait for you. Then, when his desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, 
He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. As I said, temptation is closely related to trials or can result from a trial. Uh, a response to temptation is rooted in our fallen nature. It's, uh, it satisfies our flesh and our lusts. God allows trials, but he does not tempt. God allowed Satan to bring these things into Job's life, these, these trials into Job's life, but he didn't tempt Job to curse him and die. Uh, that was his wife, I believe. But anyway, to blame God is to slander God. At the same time, temptation, to be tempted is not to sin, uh, but it's given over to our desires. Temptation is when we want to satisfy our desires outside of God's will. And this, we think of this uh, sexually, and it's not just sexually. I mean, God gives us a lot of desires. God gives us a desire for rest. But if I rest too much, if I, if I sleep the day away, then it becomes laziness, right? God gives us a desire to eat. I'm glad you didn't see my plate at the potluck the other day, but if it, we eat too much, it can become gluttony, right? Um, and then, you know, there is, God gives us a sexual desire, but outside of his plan for sex inside of marriage, it becomes immorality and fornication. So our temptations are fulfillment of our natural desires outside of the will of God. So verse 15 there, uh, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. This is the result of an incorrect response to temptation. A non-getting-with-God response. This is, I, I see this, I want it. I didn't respond correctly to temptation. I overate, in an easier example. <laughs> So there's, there's the story of two men, uh, biblically. The first one is David. And this is in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. Second Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It happened, many of you, you're probably all familiar with the story. Uh, it happened in the spring of the year, at, a, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. 
So, if we take this situation and apply it to verse 15, David saw this desire. He had this desire. And it conceived and it gave birth to sin. He lay with Bathsheba. He saw her. At that point, he lay with her and he, he sinned. And, and it gave... And, when it is full grown, full when when sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So, the aftermath of that event uh, in Second Samuel, most of these these next few things are going to all be from Second Samuel, verse from chapter twelve to eighteen. I'm sure you're all familiar with them. But the aftermath, especially in in light and context of this verse, first Uriah dies. It is murdered. And his infant son dies. His son that, that uh, was conceived with Bathsheba. That infant son dies. Then uh, adversity rises from his own house, we're told. His son Amnon rapes his daughter Tamar. As a result of that, Amnon is murdered by his other son Absalom. And Absalom conspires to usurp David's throne and just about gets away with it. In the meantime, while all this is going on, David's one of most David's most trusted advisors, Ahithophel, defects to Absalom, and as a result of Absalom not taking his advice, he ultimately hangs himself. The suicide of one of David's best advisors, closest advisors, and incidentally, that was Bathsheba's grandpa. Then Absalom finally, his death is he's killed by Joab despite David's explicit orders. Now, that's quite a, a path of destruction and death. And James warns us about that. That's what happens in this verse 15. James warns us, this will come. And it came to David and his family. So, if we think back, you know, if you think, oh, David, if I could have just read that verse, I would have known better. What should he have done? Well, first of all, he shouldn't have been there. As, as many of y'all know the story, he should have been out with the, with Joab and the, and the army in the field. But but he was there. So what should he have done once he sees this beautiful woman bathing? And, and there's no, no too many people who bathe with their clothes on. So he sees this. What should he have done? Wouldn't it be better if he backs right back into the house and he he gets Zadok, his priest, and uh, Nathan, his prophet, and he says, hey, I, I, just, I saw this gal, and man, she is smoking hot. And what should I do? I'm the king, you know. What should I do? And, and Nathan reads in the scripture, well, it says here, thou shalt not commit adultery. So let's, let's go get, you know, some wagon full of arrows and swords, and let's get some bread and cheese sandwiches, and let's go see how Joab's doing. Think of all that destruction we wouldn't have had five chapters in Second Samuel of destruction as a result of David's sin, as a result of his incorrect answer to temptation, to the temptation that he saw there. So, the second man, of course, is Jesus. And of course, I know he's, he's God in the flesh. He's also a 100% man. Uh, what did he do? Uh, Luke chapter 4 takes us through that, his response to temptation. Uh, 
this is, of course, I'm sure we're all familiar with the story. This is the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus, beginning in verse 1, filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for those 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. That's, an, that's another thing we should take note of. We're not tempted by things we're not, we don't want. Uh, Jesus was hungry. What does Satan do? Tempt him with something to eat, with bread. We're not, we're not tempted by things we don't really care about. But he's got Jesus, and Jesus is very hungry, I'm sure. Forty days, right? Without food. Hey, make yourself some bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, verse, verse 4, But Jesus answered, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Again, something that Jesus ultimately died to, to save all of us, he's offering it to him, an easy way out, something that Jesus would want. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a temptation. But, but Jesus, verse 8, Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only, shall, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You know, I read that and I think about that and I think, well, you know, Jesus could have, you know, he could have stood up there on the pinnacle and bam, and, you know, and, the Jesus, and Satan's knocked down and he's flying and hits the bottom, bam, he hits the bottom. Jesus kind of floats down there. Do you know, you know who you're messing with? Come on. And bam, bam, something, you know, hits him. And, and that would be cool. I, <laughs> that would be cool, really cool to, to, to see that, but but Jesus doesn't. How does he answer that? He doesn't do that because we can't contend with Satan that way. We have to contend with Satan the way he showed us with the word of God. Every time, every temptation, every time he answers with the word of God. That That's why it's critical that we study the Word of God in Psalms 119, 105. Uh, we, we cannot know, we, we can know the correct response to each of our individual temptations. But it helps to know the Word of God, which Ephesians six seventeen tells us is the sword of the Spirit. It's an offensive weapon for defeating the temptations, and it's not good enough just on Sundays. I mean, think about it in this term. We eat food every day because we need to. That desire to eat pretty much every day, unless we're sick or something, but pretty much every day we eat. Is, is it enough just to eat one time a week? Not for me. <laughs> Not for me. But 
It's the same, same thing with our spiritual food. Is it enough just to come on Sundays? Is it enough just to come on Sundays and Wednesdays, two days a week we're going to eat? We need to be in the Word daily. We need to be focused on it. We need to be studying it. Then we know how to respond when Satan tempts us with this or that or the other thing. Exactly the way Jesus responded. Uh, Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. On his own, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It goes kind of without saying, Satan is not the giver of gifts. We'll pay every day when we succumb to those temptations. You think David, uh, he was never probably the same, quite the same ruler after that incident, after all those cascading disasters struck his house because of his giving in to the wrong, the wrong response to his temptation. Uh, God is the giver of good gifts. And in and this scripture, it, it has the idea of every good gift comes is from above and comes down from the Father and continues to come down from the Father. Uh, it's, it's a continual thing. The Father of lights, giving every good gift of the Holy Spirit by the word of truth, which is Jesus, John 1.1, 1, 1, so that we believers can be the first fruits, the best. We are the best. And this is what we exalt in back Back in verse 9, we are the first fruits, the, the best of the best. It's, it's, uh, study that in the Old Testament as you, as you have time. So then, verse 19, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So in light of the trials and the temptations, the directions that were given by James here through the Holy Spirit is to hear, to hear, not just listen. All of the Old Testament directions, the feasts, the circumcision, the sacrifices, but learn there's now a new substitute, not a substitute, but those are, those are out the door. Now we learn from the new, which took the place of the old. Um, verse 21 therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls receiving the new with meekness the word the word is Jesus John 1 1 again because this is what saved us but a Christian life is a life as a process it's a transformation so how do we transform? How do we, what is one thing we can do to, to transform? Uh, verse 22, and this is, should be familiar to all of us, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. 
But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what is done. So the word, the Bible, the scriptures, is that mirror. And, and we've all, just like James, it's going to be a little blunt, but we've all sneezed and then think we're cool. We're good, I'm good, but, but kind of have a rock hanging out of your nose. And, you know, and you're like, that word is the mirror that shows us that. And at first, you know, buddy, you got a rock hanging out of your nose. We don't listen. We don't pay attention. Hey, buddy. And the neighbors, the next door, you got a rock hanging out of your nose. Because <laughs> God loves us. He won't let us get away with it, whatever it is. He won't let that stay. He's going to do whatever it takes to get that out of our way because he loves us. So that the scriptures are that mirror that we look at ourselves and, and then we don't want to go away and forget what we look like and forget that we had something hanging out of our nose. We want to take care of it. We want to get rid of it. And that scriptures will tell us, and, but if we have to do it, we have to do it after hearing about it. Make sure I got nothing hanging out. <laughs> if anyone among you, verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, we're going to hear more in the coming weeks about the tongue. James has a lot to say about it. But deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. True religion is not church attendance or tithes or checking any other box. It's visiting the orphans and widows in their trouble and keeping yourself unspotted from the world. And, oh, really? Is that all? That's, that should be easy to do, right? And No, we can't do that without, without the Holy Spirit living in us. True religion is the doing. We don't live this out. Who will? We don't care for the orphans and widows who will. We don't do it all in the name of Jesus. Who will? And I know, and I'm right there with you. Oh, so many people receiving the welfare, they're just it's fraud. and it's, it's, it's true. So what? We're called. We, we need to help. We need to do what we can to, to, for the widows and orphans and, and anybody. We, if we don't, who will? If we don't. Who will? So, uh, before we close, we do, I just wanted to, I didn't tell you the end of James, but James, according to traditions, he was martyred in 62 AD or 69 AD, uh, um, supposedly by thr- being thrown off the pinnacle of the, of the temple and then stoned because he survived that initial throw, but Anyway, uh, he was martyred, but and this is not in the scriptures, but the, the hope of that is the, the encouragement thing today is that Jesus in humanity, I know Jesus in his divinity had a purpose for that, for his martyrdom, for his death, 
as he does with all his martyrs. But, but in his humanity, I, I can't help but think that in some part of him, he was lonesome for his little brother. And the, the encouraging part is that unless the rapture happens, that's going to happen to each one of us. Hey, Mick. Hey, Dave. Hey, Paul. Hey, Casey. I'm lonesome for you. Come up and dwell with me. And that is the, the beauty of it all. So it's where we'll close. So we'll pray. Father, we, we thank you for this time. We, we thank you for this, uh, this man, James, uh, your, your brother, who, who's teaching us such valuable things. We pray that we take them all to heart. We also pray, Lord, for, uh, for our shepherd, J.D., and, and we know he's ministering to his father. We pray for healing for his father. We pray for his swift and safe return to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good night, everybody. There'll be folks up here to pray with you if you want to pray.